0: This week on the show, we have NetBSD 9.2 released. Dragonfly is also out with 6.0. We have a home network monitoring using Prometheus setup. Preventing FreeBSD to kill Postgres is what we discuss. Customizing Emacs for Git commit messages by Warner Losch. Deleting old FreeBSD boot environments by Dan Langel, which is good to know about. Always be quitting, which is some good instructions for any kind of sysadmin and engineer. And more in this week's episode of BSD. BSD Now, episode 405, or 405, OOM killer feature, recorded on the 19th of May, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnet.com to find the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed our last episode, 404, with some unusual hosts, I would say, but nevertheless interesting. And we're back in 405 now and have news for you from NetBSD starting. uh, 9.2 has been released. Yes.
1: And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it back in the day with the FreeBSD 9.2 and so on, uh, they named their release NetBSD 9.2 Nakatomi Socrates, Uh, uh nice. based on that famous uh, scene of the mainframe computer in the movie Die Hard, which ran BSD version 9.2 because back when that movie was being made, you know, they were on BSD 4.4 and it, it seemed logical. there might like, You just jack the number up and maybe that'll exist then. And it now is.
0: So that's cool.
1: They say, you know, as usual, it's got your bug fixes, stability, and security improvements. Uh, Also uh, includes better support for ZFS, including exporting ZFS over NFS. Uh, Various updates to the bozotic HTTP daemon that they include. Improvements to ARM 32-bit and Linux compatibility. Uh, A bunch of performance improvements to fread, which... You know, that's pretty fundamental, reading from a file descriptor. Um, And support to run on the TP-Link TL-WN821NV6 wireless adapter. Uh, And uh, support for the winner H5 cryptographic accelerator. Uh, The Pinebook Pro display brightness uh, works properly now. And new defaults for kern.max files and a bunch of accessibility improvements to the default window manager configurations. And of course, you know, they have the links to their full release notes, which goes into more detail.
0: Yeah, nicely structured in changes since 9.1. So there's a section about kernel, programs and services, system calls and libraries, device drivers, uh, ports build system, and third-party components. So that's another
1: BSD that's at 9.2, right? OpenBSD, with their release schedule, you could actually figure out when OpenBSD 9.2 would come out probably using a calendar. But that's quite a few years away, I think because they they do a minor version every six months, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Although I don't know when they decide to up the major version. Is it automatic when they get to nine or 10 or whatever, or do they decide based on something actually changing? Anyway, uh, another BSD had their release. They're not up to 9.2 yet either, but Dragonfly 6.0 is now out. Uh, One of the improvements in this release cycle is uh, improvements to DeSynth, which is their uh, package building system. Uh, And so there are many pre-built packages available, and you'll want to update your copies of those. Uh, other big ticket items is uh, many updates to the contributed software, some work on Hammer 2, the file system, uh, some major VM work on the uh, extent-based uh, representations of memory, and due to major change to the VM subsystem, they've now removed the map v page table mmap feature, and this also means that vKernels will not be supported in this release, Support may be re-added at a later time via the HVM system.
0: Mm-hmm. And this one is upgraded. So the NetBSD one, there is a tool called SysUpgrade. And this one here, uh, DragonflyBSD, is using Git. And that's where you can check out the latest or that release branch and then make uh, build world, build kernel, install kernel, install world, and then upgrade, make targets. Okay, so all good having... Th- so we can also make the same... Guesses when Dragonfly BSD reaches (laughs) 9.2.
1: Well, I don't know if they have the same release schedule or not.
0: Yeah, so they probably will be the the last one who will reach that.
1: Uh, I think they go major versions faster than OpenBSD. Are they? they, While they started behind, they might actually get to 9.2 before OpenBSD. Okay, so it's a
0: race, um, (laughs) an official one. But uh, yeah, we will let you know when each of those have 9. Oh, we can kind of also calculate what kind of BSD Now episode that will be what the episode number will be. I don't want to think about that number. That number will be... (laughs) That will be... Too large. Four digits, maybe. Digits. We'll see. Uh, So, when they do, when there's usually a big release, there's also a nice conference, usually, where you can report about that latest release. Unfortunately, it's not possible in the Flash at the moment. Not yet. But uh, that's why we have news from EuroBSDCon, which will be uh, the 2021 version online. Yes.
1: Uh, So you know, they held off as long as they could in hopes that things might improve enough that we could do an in-person conference. Uh, But with the end of the call for papers approaching, they had to decide. Uh, And so although COVID-19 vaccinations are proceeding, the state of the world means that it's just not possible to be confident that we'll be able to run a normal conference as early as September of this year. Uh, As such, EuroBSDCon 2021 will be an online conference. Details on the particularities, will be provided as we get closer to the event. If you haven't yet subscribed to the announcement mailing list, it is recommended so that you can make sure you catch all the important announcements.
0: Yep. So we will uh, follow that as well and let you know what the schedule will be and, uh, of course, the talks. And it's is it still time to submit? Yeah, right.
1: Uh, so when we're recording this, ah. uh, it is still possible to submit for another couple of days. But by the time this episode airs, it will already be
0: too late. Right. So you have to... So
1: if you're watching the live stream, you have like four or five days left. Hurry up and go do it. Uh, What, you know, it's been open since the middle of March. What have you been waiting for? Yeah, that's a long time. Uh, I say as one of the people who's been procrastinating and hasn't submitted the thing yet.
0: (laughs) Well, they always receive at the last minute uh, most papers.
1: Yes. Well, as one of the people on the list above that has to review them, I very much appreciated
0: if people didn't wait till the last Yeah, time. that spreads out a little bit more. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's not like people have time or don't have to, you know, commute much. Uh, but that kind of time could be put into a paper. And, uh, and some interesting talk about the conference, um, about BSD, anything that you're doing there, uh, commercial or the newest patch you are writing or the newest feature you're working on, all of this could be uh, well-placed in such a conference. And we're glad that this is finally happening, even if it's an online format. It's a nice way of seeing what other BSDs are doing. So next up,
1: we have a home networking uh, monitoring using Prometheus. So this blog post describes this person's setup for monitoring their various devices on their home network, such as servers, laptops and desktops, networking gear, etc. Uh, the setup and configuration is squarely geared towards a small or medium-sized network. Uh, a similar setup might work for large networks, but you may need to plan your compute, storage, and bandwidth capabilities a bit differently for that. They're running all of the monitoring software on FreeBSD, but you can, you know, most of this stuff is available on whatever OS you would like. So the simple version is uh, for instrumenting their Linux and BSD boxes. They just install the Prometheus node exporter, uh, and that. Sends data out to Prometheus uh, from that node. Uh, for the SNMP enabled devices, they use the SNMP exporter. Uh, and for instrumenting their TCP, UDP, and ICMP services, they use the black box exporter. And then they collect all of those metrics uh, using Prometheus and then feed that into Grafana uh, to make uh, a nice dashboard out of it. Mm-hmm. So they have a bit of a diagram here. This is, uh, for all my needs, I've decided to go with Prometheus and Grafana. I will discuss the reasoning for doing that in a separate post. Uh, But basically, you can see they have exporters coming from, you know, Nginx, Apache, Redis, and their database going into Prometheus, as well as they have a bunch of websites with their black box or ping exporter, making sure all the websites are reachable. Then the servers all run the node exporter and send information about that uh, off to Prometheus. And then all their SNMP devices get pulled by the SNMP exporter, which grabs information from their switches and their routers, their Wi-Fi access points, their printers, their NAS, all that stuff, collects that and shoves it all into Prometheus, which then feeds it all into Grafana, which makes all that data usable to the users. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Uh, Optionally, you can also use the Prometheus Alert Manager uh, for alerting when metrics trip over certain thresholds. uh, Using Unbound as your recursive caching DNS resolver, uh, they use caddy.io as a reverse proxy in front of Grafana. And then there are other Prometheus exporters to monitor specific services, like there's ones for MariaDB and Postgres, and for your NoSQL stuff like Redis and Mongo, etc. Uh, note that the exporters don't push data to Prometheus, rather the, exporter, or the Prometheus process scrapes data from a list of configured exporters. So you need to open up the respective network ports so that your monitoring can reach out and uh, pull that information in. So now looking at the hardware and software stack, uh, so what is critical to understand is that you have the flexibility of running Prometheus, Grafana, and these black box and SNMP exporters all on a single machine or each on separate machines or virtual machines. Uh, if you have decent virtualization stack, you can easily run them in VM or even just use FreeBSD jails. However, you do have to run the node exporter on every server, workstation, desktop, laptop, or whatever that you want to collect information about one specific node. Uh, so for their home network, my hardware and software stack consists of, you know, they have a, their network management box is a Pine64, uh, A64 plus LTS. Uh, that's running FreeBSD13 uh, and runs Prometheus, Grafana, Caddy, and the node exporter for monitoring itself. Uh, so they call this their network monitoring server. Uh, the hardware is cheap, power efficient, and very uh, or cheap and power efficient, but sufficiently powerful to be able to run all the processes. Then they have a collector box, which is uh, a Pine64 A64 SoPine, also running FreeBSD13. That runs the node exporter for itself, the black box exporter to monitor external things via ping and so on, like websites, and the SNMP exporter that talks to all their fixed network devices. So this collector box runs an even cheaper uh, ARM64 single board computer. And then they get into the specifics of Um, their configuration so the node exporter you can just package install node underscore exporter and that's all you need and then uh, service node exporter enable start and it's off to the races Uh, with prometheus again package install prometheus uh, and then you can create your prometheus.yaml config file and again uh, service prometheus enable start and they have an example of what the config file looks like and you can just configure uh, your scraping interval and uh, you're alerting and any rules you want and some scraping configs and just tell it, you know, go scrape this, that, and the other thing and you're good to go. Then Grafana, again, package install Grafana 7, uh, service Grafana, enable start. And uh, again, a little configuration, you're good to go. The Blackbox exporter, again, same thing, package install Blackbox exporter, uh, set up a config file, enable start, and you're good to go. And they have some examples here of you know, connecting to uh, a machine on port 22 and making sure that it replies with SSH 2.0 so you know that your SSH server is working or connect to a web server and make sure it's working or just, you know, any TCP service and make sure that you can actually establish a connection. Uh, And there's lots of configuration examples and so on in there. And then they have some screenshots and a tour of their dashboard uh, to give you an idea of what it ends up looking like it's quite pretty nice uh, so he says it took me a grand total of what, eight or ten hours spread over two weekends to get this whole thing set up most of that time was spent in reading the configuration guides for the various components also the snmp exporter portion took most of the time due to complicated steps involved uh, overall though i'm very pleased with the setup for starters i found uh some of my pine 64 SBCs, which were been lying around idle until this point and found something to do with them Secondly, I think the setup is flexible enough that I was able to track even more different types of time series data and metrics from IoT devices like tracking the weather outside or how much energy and water my house is using. And You know, the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. So if you read this whole post end to end and configure it, uh, then tip of the hat for your patience and uh, guessing that this will take you less time than it took them to do it the first time. Uh, So, you know, you can probably get it done in one weekend.
0: Yeah, it's especially nice if you have someone who blogged about this, collected all the information together in one piece that people can follow along. And that's very uh, useful uh, and appreciated because people can kind of pick stuff from there and leave stuff out they don't need and um, have still everything as a reference and can even ask the, the blog author to, you know, hey, I have a question about this and that or I've done it this way. What do you think and stuff? So that's pretty cool to have. So next is uh, an article about preventing FreeBSD to kill Postgres, like the OOM killer prevention, which is also the namesake of this episode. So we have found on Luca Ferrari's blog this uh, article, and this is really about preventing the killer to strike the wrong application. Uh, So he writes, there are a lot of interesting articles on how to prevent the out-of-memory killer, or OOM uh, in short, On Linux to ruin your day or better your night. One particular well-done explanation about how the OOM killer works and how to help Postgres to survive is, in my humble opinion, the one from the Percona blog, and that's linked there. So he tends to run Postgres on FreeBSD machines, at least whenever it's possible. And quite frankly, uh, I have still a lot of things to learn. One of those little details is about FreeBSD OOM Killer. Yeah, that's a bit different implementation than the Linux one. It turned out that FreeBSD has its own OOM Killer implementation. Uh, Links to an article about it. And he discovered it recently via the excellent FreeBSD forums and, as usual, the kindness and profession of the community behind this great operating system. I'm just reading this here. It's not my... (laughs) Not my words, but I can confirm that. Yeah, so a difference between Linux and FreeBSD is that the former exploits a lot of the slash proc file system to let the administrator interact with the process configurations and information, while the latter does not. And thanks to the uh, article linked above, uh, they discovered a protect command that is aimed at instrumenting or to instrument the OOM killer. So here it describes the OOM killer and how it's configured using that protect feature. So, processes in FreeBSD have a particular flag named proc underscore s protect that, as the man page for procctl system call states, is used to instrument the AOM killer to skip this process when selecting a candidate to kill. So, if memory gets short and swap is also even shorter, then a process has to leave the boat, right? They have to be killed, and you can use this to protect a certain process to kill your, in this case, Postgres database, so let your web shop still continues running.
1: Yeah. So the, the main reason this was added is it was found sometimes the thing it would decide to kill would be syslog, which is really annoying mm. because what you most importantly, uh, the OM killer logs which process it killed and that it killed it because the system was out of memory. But if it kills
0: syslog, you never get a chance. Yeah, debugging is more difficult if you don't have logs about that specific time. Yeah, it's like, why
1: why did a bunch of my services go down? It's like, oh, well, it seems because the OM killer killed my syslog and didn't log all the other things it killed after that. And the other one is, how about not killing my sshd, please, because I need that in order to try to fix the out-of-memory condition.
0: Yeah, so that should be also not in the list of things to kill first. Yeah, so the process here, uh, or the description from the man page reads, the proc as protect sets the process protection state. This is used to mark a process as protected from being killed if the system exhausts the available memory and swap. So the idea is that when the O M killer scans the processes to find out one or more candidates to kill to immediately free memory, the protected processes must be skipped. So an important thing to note is that protection is not inherited by the forked processes, Luckily, it's possible to mark a protected process so that it's children to inherit the protection status so that they can also be protected and not get selected. Um, In fact, setting proc as protect to pprot underscore set set, protects the current process but not its children. And pprot set and pipe to or. Or. That's the or, the logical or. Uh, The pprot inherit protects the current process and any children from it. So why is this detail important? Because as we all know, Postgres starts with a main process, the Postmaster, that forks a new process for every new connection. Therefore, if you are free to control the OM killer protection at the level of Postmaster or connection level, this is what you should do. And as a warning, marking all processes as protected can prevent the OM killer to work at all, right? With the presumably result of panicking the whole machine, which is also not desired.
1: Yeah. So if you protect every process, then when you're out of memory, there's nothing you can do. Uh, so with Postgres, it can make sense. You want to protect the master process. But if you know one particular connection is using all the memory, then maybe you want that one to be the one that gets killed. Mm-hmm.
0: And so there's a description how you can run the protect uh, program that's just specifying the process ID that you want to protect this way. And there's a couple yeah, of... And then there's an optional flag to control uh, whether you want the children
1: to to inherit that protection or not. Uh, like if you do protect-d dash and then-p dash a PID, then that will apply to all the current children, uh, but not any future children. Or if you use the dash-i flag for inherit, then it will actually set the inherit flag on each of those children when it protects them so that they uh, will also be protected. Mm-hmm.
0: And for Postgres specifically, there is a an entry you can do in Uh, rc.conf no
1: this is generic so the the rc subsystem in freebsd actually sets up a system so that when you you have the the common namespace of daemon name underscore enable equals yes uh, but you can also do daemon name underscore oom protect equals yes for the one process or all for it to also inherit to all the children um although i did see an update to a man page going on right now that If you override specific things in the RC script, that it uh, can end up undoing that OOM protect because of the way the the RC script constructs all the bits, but uh, that's not really important. But yeah, so you don't have to run these protect commands automatically. You can just set, you know, nginx underscore OOM protect equals all and uh, or Postgres or whatever the service name is, underscore OOM protect equals all in your RC.conf. And uh, as part of starting the process, Uh, freebsd will set the protect bits for you
0: oh yeah that's important to know and i think there's also a review currently open to actually document that om protect in the rc.conf man page i think so yeah it's uh yeah we're reviewing that and it's looking good so this will be uh happening soon and then there's a little um function they wrote for the postgres um as a stored procedure to kind of trigger and see whether uh when a process gets killed that Um, sets a certain uh, oh yeah it it creates a temporary table and um, you know tells that it was protected or not and concludes uh, with as usual FreeBSD reveals itself as a complex and well designed operating system. Postgres can be protected against the OOM killer in a more aggressive way with regard to Linux but as usual protecting everything is like protecting nothing at all. So they recommend to not abuse uh, about the protect command. I think you might be able
1: to use uh, procstat to investigate the flags as well, uh, which might have a slightly nicer output than doing it with ps. But
0: Oh yeah, that could very yeah. well be. That should be or should know about that uh if that flag is set or not.
1: Yeah, in conclusion, as usual FreeBSD reveals itself as a complex and well-designed operating system. Postgres can be protected against the OOM killer in a more aggressive way with compared to what Linux can do, but as usual protecting everything is protecting nothing.
0: All right. Oh, next we have an article from uh, Warner Lars' blog, customizing Emacs for Git commit messages.
1: Yeah, so Warner says, I do a lot of commits to the FreeBSD project and elsewhere. It would be nice if I could set up Emacs in a custom way for each commit message when I'm editing it. Uh, Fortunately, GNU Emacs provides a nice way to do that. While I likely could do some of these things with Git commit hooks, I find this to be a little nicer. First up, we need to do something Uh, when we pull up the commit message to edit. By convention, git uses the git underscore edit message uh, through the exact location of this file. This depends on where your git tree is set up. Emacs has a hook that's run when Emacs starts editing a file called the find file hook. So he adds a hook on the find file hook and makes it do the uh, imp git hook, Uh, imp being Warner's username. We'll do this job nicely. So, next up, we need to define this function to do something useful when it runs. Indeed, failure to define it will result in an error message every time you open a file. So, he defines the function imp git hook. And it says, when the file name base uh, and buffer file name is commit underscore edit message, then it runs the function FreeBSD git setup. But what is this FreeBSD git setup? It's a little function I wrote to set Emacs to fill the columns to 72 as usual. Whereas normally when he's using Emacs, edit a file, the limit is 80. But since commit messages turn into emails, it works better if it's not quite as wide. Uh, but that produces commit messages that are just a bit too wide when Git adds his leading spaces and so on. So he defines the FreeBSD Git setup function, uh, which sets his column fill to 72. Also does a regular expression to search for sponsored by and some uh, other lines and to automatically deal with commented out chunks as well. Uh, but it says, this only adds the sponsorship tag if there isn't already one there. So it automatically fills out the sponsored by and his commit messages by default uh, so that he doesn't have to remember to do that. Uh, this is a proof of concept function. No doubt it will evolve over time. The project often adds the differential revision tags as the last tag in a commit message because differentials uh, used to require that. Uh, if you... Uh, so. Uh, so it wouldn't be good to add this for non-freebsd commits so i have to uh, find a way to filter on that but i thought this would be useful if nothing else then uh, in my future self as a roadmap on how to do these things Mm
0: -hmm. yeah this might come in handy to other developers uh to just change the uh usernames and uh, lines they're filtering like
1: i have um A similar thing set up as a git hook on the OpenZFS repo to automatically add the signed off by line Mm -hmm. uh, to my commits because they can't be merged if it's missing.
0: (laughs) Ah, okay. That's a protection there. Good. Looks nice. And in our next article, it seems like Dan Langell, ever busy, is doing some spring cleaning in his boot environments Uh, because that's the title of his uh, blog post here, deleting old FreeBSD boot environments. So he writes, I like boot environments on FreeBSD. They are especially handy when building the AWS host for fresh ports. I think that's finished by now. So yes, great work there, Dan. Um, Since I had no serial console, I would create a boot environment, saving the current status, then make some changes. I'd mark the current boot environment as boot once, so I could boot back in the known good boot environment. Worst case, I could mount the storage onto a rescue EC2 instance and adjust the bootFS value of the pool. OK, so he's showing us the current status of his uh, boot environments. So there's three of them here. And his goals are to delete the 12.2 release P4, because he's probably on 13 by now. And the one before adding alias uh, should also get off and onto default. Ah, yes. OK, that's his plan. So he always describes and documents the steps that he's doing, and the commands he's entering, and the outputs. So first, he'll delete the 12.2 release snapshot. Uh, Snapshot. Well, it's a snapshot, but it's a boot environment uh, to be more precise. But he's very cautious about this. So he's going to look at what will be deleted. Uh, There are the file systems, which are deleted to those. So you can run list a And this lists you the active uh, mount points referenced. And now, if you want, but yes, to, yeah. he's uh, doing
1: very good best practices here. Is before running the ZFS destroy, he runs ZFS destroy with the dash N or no op flag. So it won't actually do it. It'll just tell you what it's going to do, combined with V to make it print out what it's going to do. Uh, and you can see here it lists that it's going to destroy a bunch of snapshots that were created by his auto snap script uh, his, you know, his hourly, frequently, daily, etc. snapshots that will get destroyed when he gets sort of the old uh good environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. If ZFS tells you would destroy, you have provided the NV flags. And if you just give us, it would, it would tell you will destroy, then it's actually doing it and uh, the snapshots are gone. So reviewing that output, everything looks fine. So he can go ahead now and run bctl destroy and he's providing the O parameter. What does the O parameter do? I don't need that in my, uh, Alan is quickly typing and looking it up. You don't know it offhand. Um, Why is he using the... Uh, It destroys the origin as well. Oh, yes. Of course, yeah, because he does really want to get rid of everything there. Okay, so now he has only two. And the next is now uh, for fun. Uh, He's not planning to destroy the boot environment, uh, but let's look at before adding alias. That's the name of the boot environment. It is the one I want to keep, and that's the one the system is booting from right now. Yeah, so you should preserve that. So he's doing another uh, NRV run to ZFS destroy to see what would have been destroyed, but just simulates it. Uh, Yeah, and he sees that it would have unintended consequences. That would delete the default boot environment. Ouch. So he's not going to delete that one.
1: Yes, because right now uh, default is a clone of this before adding aliases, and so it depends on it.
0: Yeah, that's why it's listed as well. Okay, so on to the next. What would happen if you delete the boot environment zroot slash root slash default. And yes, that looks okay to him. And so he does that. And now the last thing he has to do is to run a bctl rename and to name it default. So that default is the one he always uh, starts from next. So next.
1: Yes. Um, So the other option you have there, uh, if you actually wanted to keep the one that was called default in that case, where, you know, your old one, is the origin and your new one is a clone of it and you want to delete the old one and it says oh you can't do that because you'd have to delete the dependent clone there's the command zfs promote which will flip the relationship Mm. and make the new the clone be the parent and the old parent be the clone of it and then you can destroy the old one instead and keep the new one but in this case that's not what he wanted to do but uh if he had that's what he would have done there
0: it's it's an option yeah So are you doing the default thing or are you just renaming?
1: Yes. uh, So what I normally do is I have the one called default and I'm running it. And then before I upgrade, Mm -hmm. I create a new boot environment called before whatever I'm upgrading to. And that sits over at the side. And then I just upgrade the running system, the one called default. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm always using default by default. uh, And it uses the um, before one is my way to go back. So that's how I do it on my laptop. Mm -hmm. Uh, In production, it's a little different. Uh, But those ones, we actually download a new boot environment uh, that has a newer version of the OS in it that's already been built somewhere else because we use the exact same build on hundreds of machines. Uh, And then we use the the boot once feature. So uh, B-E-C-T-L activate dash T -t for temporary uh, and say next time only boot the new version. Then we reboot the machine. It comes up on the new version. If everything's good, we do the BECTL activate to make that permanent. If it's not, just reboot or power cycle if it didn't boot or whatever. And it goes back to the version it was running before. Mm. So on our servers, they have a boot environment that's named for the version it's running. And they just download newer versions. Oh, that's clever. Uh, But that's because we need those machines to always come up nicely. Whereas my laptop, uh, you know, I just keep snapshots of before. Uh, you know, so there's, the main one usually is before name of conference year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, that way anything that goes wrong at the conference can be undone.
0: Yeah. So I do the uh, boot environment, naming it for the new release. And then later, once the update is done, I'm switching to that one. So I always have the boot environment representing the version of the operating system. And I also keep the one before to uh, jump back to it. But yeah, there's many ways to to do this. Yes.
1: So, you know, you can make a new boot environment and then install into it and reboot into it after, or you can make a new boot environment, reboot onto it, and then upgrade,
0: or, you know, any of them is valid. Sure. Okay. And now we have an article that's a bit more of the social type, uh, but nevertheless important. That's why we included it. Always be quitting. That sounds uh, weird at first, but um, here goes. this is uh,
1: from Julio Marino,
0: uh, who is a
1: I don't semi, uh, semi-retired FreeBSD uh, yeah, uh, I think he's still somewhat active. Anyway, he says, uh, a good philosophy to live by at work is to always be quitting. No, don't be constantly thinking about leaving your job, but act as if you might leave on short notice. While counterintuitive, this will make you a better engineer and open up growth opportunities. So he says, so what does it mean to always be quitting? It means make yourself replaceable uh, or deprecate yourself. Automatic, uh, or automate yourself out of a job and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. You might have heard these uh, more popular names, which you'll need to do uh, your own research. And uh, that gives you kind of a hint on how to act. The key lies in not being indispensable. If you are, you'll be stuck at your specific job for as long as that job is uh, relevant with little chance to disconnect. No vacation, no growth. And when, not if, that job becomes unnecessary, so will your position. Paradoxically, by being disposable, you find uh, you free yourself. You make it easier for yourself to grow into higher-level roles, and to make it easier for yourself to change the projects you work on. Still confused? Uh, here are ten specific things you can do. Number one: document your knowledge. Every time someone asks you a question, they are highlighting a gap in the existing documentation. Take the chance to write that answer down in a document, a bug report, a code comment, whatever, so the next person doesn't need you. Mm -hmm. document your long-term plans people should know what's coming up on your project or team by looking at those plans not by relying on you to tell them in real time plan a few months ahead so if you leave your peers won't be lost without you you know that even applies if it's just i'm gonna need a sick day or two or something you know you want to make sure you're not everything's depending on you in real time Uh, number three is document your meetings keep public within the team anyway notes on all meetings you attend, uh, listing who was there, what was discussed and what the conclusions were. Reference these notes from design documents and your replacement will be much, uh, have a much easier time catching up to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says, uh, number four is bring others to meetings. Uh, if not a one-on-one and you are the only person from your team attending a meeting, involve someone else. Different perspectives are useful, but more importantly, you're avoiding becoming the only point of contact. Also, kind of refers back to that document your meetings uh your notes will be better if you've got two perspectives on it because a you might miss something or forget to write it down and the other person won't or you might both document the same thing as having happened slightly differently and being able to discuss it afterwards will make better notes Hmm. number five train people around you the goal is for them to be independent which is usually considered seniority in a typical engineering ladder uh familiarize them with the plans and technologies and make sure they know how to use the documentation. Number six, identify and train your replacement. Uh, In the same vein as training others, to switch roles you'll need to replace yourself. So identify who that replacement might be and start actively working and continuously coaching them so that they can take over for you so that you can be freed up to do the next higher up job. Number seven, give power to the people. Trust them to do the right thing. If you are in a leadership position, don't make uh, it so people come up to ask you for permission Let them make their own choices, guide them so that the choices are based on the right data. Uh, Number eight, do not make yourself a point of contact. Establish mailing lists or other forms of communications that can accommodate other people, then grow those people. Uh, The exception is when management needs names for accountability and so on. Mm. Number nine, delegate. Once you have given power to others, include them in groups and meetings uh, and document your knowledge. They'll be ready to work when uh, or they'll be ready to take over work from you. Delegating work can make them grow and focus on things only you can do right now, and you don't want there to be anything left where that only you can do. And number 10, always be learning. Take the chance to grow your knowledge in an area you're interested in and keep it fun. Bonus points if this area aligns with the future plans that you want to take. Oh yeah, that's it. So that's your list there. Uh, Note that nothing here implies abdicating responsibility. You still have to be responsible for all the projects and teams you own. And you have to be that for as long as you're in your role. This is important because this responsibility is what will open up those new gates. Lastly, noting that by doing all of the above, you're actually making your whole team better, not just yourself, even if you are uh, an independent contractor. In fact, you are uh, practicing a subset of the skills sometimes associated with staff or principal engineers.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a nice list. I could see myself printing that on a piece of paper and, you know, putting it in the, on an the office wall to remind me occasionally about doing uh, any of those uh, 10 things more. Cool, very nice. Oh, yes. And point number 11 should be make proper backups, right? Because if everything is lost, then you have to start from scratch, and that takes a long time. So why don't you look at uh, Tarsnap for this? Because it's a good way to back up your system. And it's just a secure way, because especially with company data, you might not want to trust uh, any backup service there. but. Tarsnap is encrypted and you are the only person with the key and no one else can decrypt that data. So that's a good use case, uh, but also not for just for companies, but also for uh, your own personal private data at home that you also want to keep safe in case disaster strikes. You can always get your data back as long as you have the key still backed up separately. Uh, and that's all it takes. The Tarsnap uh, code is very well documented and you can look it up if you're kind of suspicious that they have some backdoors in there or something that's out of the ordinary. Uh very good pricing model that's cheap, especially if you have a long list of data and a lot of uh data to back up. They still won't bankrupt you, not necessarily. You can I mean for my use cases, um it's charging you ten dollars at the beginning of the year and that lasts me maybe two years depends on my Yeah, heard. I
1: put $20 in like 4 years ago yeah. and it's almost used up now.
0: Yeah, so they won't really bankrupt you just for running backups and especially running them regularly and with um their deduplication feature you won't uh, see a lot of uh costs increase if you regularly back up in the
1: background. Well, most importantly, you can't spend more money than you put in. Exactly, yeah. Whereas most cloud things are very happy to run up a large bill on your credit card. <laughs> Uh, with Tarsnap, you put the money in first, and if it runs out, it just stops backing up, and you've got to manage
0: it. But it means you don't ever get a surprise bill. Yes, that's one thing. And for the users who have used Tar in one way or the other before, they will find the Tarsnap command line very familiar. And for the people who are more GUI centered and want to have some kind of backup client sitting there, they can also grab a graphical interface from uh, people. Outside of the TarSnap project, we have built that and wrapped that around the TarSnap command line. And that's available for any graphical user interface. So TarSnap is available for pretty much all the operating systems out there, whether it's Unix, Windows, Linux, any kind of or, Mac as well. Uh, so no excuses not to run TarSnap or give it a shot for a couple weeks and uh, let it run your backups. Okay, here we are in the feedback and questions section. We are happy that we still keep receiving uh, feedback and questions. I I see people are excited that uh, we have some different moderators now or hosts. And they kind of address each one now in the list uh, when they write to us, which is good. Um, So keep sending those to feedback at bsdnow.tv. We always look forward to uh, helping you in this capacity if you have a question for us or just provide feedback or any kind of blog post that you think is worthwhile uh, to add in the show so the first that we have this week is christopher with a zfs question and i know someone who loves those um (laughs) so christopher writes i've been enjoying the show thank you for the effort and keep up the good work thank you i'd like to submit a question here you did i'm a huge fan of zfs We are, too. I have a set of spinning Rust drives on which I keep my data, and then SSDs have become cheap enough that I have a 1TB SSD for the OS. As 13 has just come out, I'm looking at upgrade strategies. I've been considering boot environments, but I'm not really sure they're exactly what I'm looking for. I get the sense that, other than the root partition, boot environments reuses some of your existing partitions. It snapshots the root first and then clones it to a new file system and installs over that. If you have files that don't get overwritten by an install, they stick around either because they're on the root, which gets overwritten, or on a partition that gets reused. That's great, but I'd rather erase and start from scratch each time. Then copy over what I need from the old install. I don't need to figure out what isn't needed anymore, but it's just left over from a previous install. When disk starts to get tight after a few installs, I will just go and delete the oldest install. SSDs are so large and cheap that I have plenty of space to do that. Is there a way to do this using boot environments, or perhaps it's easy without boot environments? Curious what thoughts you might have on the matter.
1: Okay, so the first thing to remember is that ZFS isn't going to be using a bunch of different uh, partitions. In general, you create your pool, and it will use one partition or whatever from that SSD, and that's the pool. Then on top of that, you can create as many file systems as you want. The one thing to remember is when you're creating the uh, a clone... Initially, the clone is exactly the same as the original files and doesn't take any space. So, uh, kind of when we talked about Dan's uh, thing with boot environments a little bit earlier in this episode, you remember on my laptop, what I do is I create that clone of my root file system, but I name that before upgrading to 13. And then I just do a regular upgrade in place on my root partition, uh, or the root file system, it's not a partition, root file system, uh, as if it was UFS or whatever um and so it overwrites some files but the files that don't change don't take up any extra space right so the the clone is is the before and my live file system is the after now when i've just upgraded to 13. the before that's 12.2 will the clone will grow from being zero bytes large to being the size of all the files that get overwritten because the clone is keeping the old versions so any file that didn't change doesn't cost me any extra space. And the files that did have their space charged to the clone, the old version, because when you delete the old version, you'll get that space back. And then your live root file system will have the new version. So uh, there's a lot less concern than what you have here about old files and new files. But if you do want to just have, uh, make a new boot environment that's completely empty and do a fresh install into it, there's a tool in the FreeBSD source tree under tools, tools, I think, called be install and it basically does uh manages doing a making the new boot environment and doing a make install world and make install kernel etc into that new boot environment so yeah you have a new root that is basically a fresh install and then merges over things like your password file and and any other etc files Uh, so i just do a normal install as if it was ufs and i only had one root i just keep a snapshot and clone of my old root so i can go back to it and then I can delete it if I don't need it anymore. Uh, but if you do actually want to create a complete fresh install, you can use that BE install script that's in the source tree uh, to do it as well.
0: Yep. So definitely do it. boot environments. They're especially helpful if you, uh, a couple of weeks or days later, dis- discover that something isn't working. And so you can always uh, go back to a working state that you had before the upgrade. And as we said earlier in this episode, we had different strategies how to do that, but the result is basically the same. You have a way to get back to a working state.
1: Right. Um, But yeah, the big thing is that you're not, when you make a clone, you're not making a copy of all those files. So it's not doubling the amount of space you're using. But the clone initially, until you change a file, the clone takes zero space. And then if you change a file, the clone gets charged for the old copy uh, because the new copy belongs to the new one. And so... And then you can delete those at any time in order to get some of the space back.
0: Yeah, only the things that change are charged to the file system. OK, hopefully your update goes well. And we're now switching from Christopher to Chris, uh, who has two questions. And Chris writes, hello, since Benedict always seems so sad about the lack of questions, I felt compelled to get in touch and cheer him up. Excellent. Yes, you did. And I'll try to be less sad in the future. (laughs) Okay, so he has two questions. Uh, The first one, at some point, Benedict mentioned that he manages BSD servers within the university department and it sounded like uh, this might be related to scientific computing in HPC. Could you talk a bit uh, about that more? Uh, In particular, what role BSD serves in such a setting? I'm not aware of any scientific packages which are routinely run on BSD rather than Linux. Yeah, so I run uh, our uh, CS department's uh, big data cluster. So we're doing... uh, Labs on those mostly in the master's course there's a, a data science course uh, or class that we have there a whole class you can study that and um, I basically run all the software they're using in the uh, in the labs for for research or for their thesis and um, there's a couple of requirements that we have as as anyone might have in the university it's a bit special because we're not too concerned with like data protections and stuff because a semester runs like or a project goes maybe a year at the longest. There are some long-running projects, but they're uh, a little bit special and not so frequent. Um, and so I can also reinstall the machines and don't have to keep long backups like a company would need to. So recently, um, the, we, had, we had two problems with BSD and that scientific uh, part or with those NoSQL areas. The first one is that we... Uh, are running in uh, like pretty much most universities uh, in an uh, Kerberos Active Directory environment, and we're using the free IPA from uh, Red Hat, and the f- the free BSD support is kind of sketchy. There's a, a long uh, ago blog post or not blog post um, a forum post in the free BSD uh, forums in the how to section that's kind of outdated i tried to get it to run to have a free bsd that could join that active directory and that kind of didn't work so that got kind of pushed back and since the semester started i had to install more ubuntu servers to my uh, you know uh, why should i um and the other thing is that most of these NoSQL databases have support for Linuxes or for the major uh, Linux distributions. And the BSDs are kind of, yeah, when we have time or when there's someone else sitting down, which normally doesn't happen too often. And so that's one of the contents. So we have basically Linux and FreeBSD on those machines. And at the moment, the Linuxes are pushing the FreeBSD boxes a little bit back, but um, there are still FreeBSD boxes for certain use cases I run. Uh, beehives, I run jails for people. So that's a typical scenario for students, anyway. Okay, um, that's the second yeah, question. like
1: I know um, with ZFS and, and Samba, there's lots of FreeBSD machines that join Active Directory domains. Yeah, the, the free uh, IP. IBA... We've done a project to hook up a FreeBSD to an Active Directory domain to do um, a squid proxy to uh, control which websites. People in a company could go to yeah, and so on. So there's definitely. Uh, I don't think either of those are using the free IPA thing though. I think they are
0: using um, Winbind or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. So the, the it it's ba- the, basically the free IPA is is Kerberos, but it's putting stuff on top of that to like some Red Hat specific stuff, which is kind of good. I'm not against that, but I was kind of like, okay, this is not working on free BSD at all. Um, so that's kind of, I want to join that domain. And I kind of know all the, the, the bits and pieces there. But there's no you know good support and the, there's no recent port for that. So I have to kind of push some uh, people maybe to <laughs> update that. But I know it's not an easy port, um, judging from the instructions in the uh, forum post. But yeah, let's go back to the question. So it's um, it's scientific computing in, in a certain kind of way. It's for education mostly and some, some research. Uh, and that's it's an interesting environment. And BSDs are perfectly suited. The, the servers are all supported. And um, it's just what kind of requirements are coming that uh, FreeBSD is sometimes less, sometimes more suited for that. Okay. Um, second part of the question: Can you guys recommend good starter projects for someone already comfortable with Linux but who has never tried BSD? Ideally, something would, which would highlight the strengths it has over Linux. The main thing I can think of so far is ZFS. I plan to use FreeBSD the next time I rebuild my home storage server, but it would be nice to have some other use cases too. Jail seemed to like uh, seems like the obvious choice, but I already tried to use multipass over Ubuntu or Podman containers on Red Hat Enterprise Linux based distros whenever I can. Uh, just wondering what other functionality BSD has, which might not be so obvious, but which you think is an important or improvement over Linux worth trying out.
1: Um, for storage stuff, what's really interesting on BSD is Geom, our storage management layer. It's kind of the equivalent of like MDADM, DMCrypt, LVM, and some other bits of linux uh all in one sane set of tools it also includes all the partitioning stuff uh so your fdisk and mbr and uh or uh fdisk and gpart and all that kind of stuff And it's actually called gpart yeah i would mention networking i mean um coming back
0: earlier oh, to the... yes
1: here's <laughs> here's one uh compare setting up uh a vlan on top of a link aggregation on freebsd uh which is one line or in your if config two or three lines. Uh and then try to do it on rel and then uh glue your hair back to your head <laughs> and be like, wow, BSD, that's nice.
0: Oh yeah. So coming back to my uh, cluster uh for a second, um of course we're using FreeBSD uh and ZFS and also ZFS on the Ubuntu's. And the experience on Ubuntu is kind of getting better, but I would definitely choose uh ZFS on FreeBSD for the heavier storage needs, if, if there's a need, um, because there's still some, you know, uh, things with the, you need to update the KMS and stuff. And it's kind of, it's there, but not a, not as in FreeBSD where it's in the bootloader, it's right there from the installer. And yeah, it's much, much more integrated, I, I find on, on FreeBSD. Uh, but definitely FreeBSD shines in the, or any BSD, I would say, in the area of networking, whether it's firewalling, whether it's setting up services, serving up some, you know, whatever your networking needs are. That's certainly a way that you can get a lot of um, information, learn a lot, and also get familiar with networking in general, which can be also used on other uh, operating systems. Uh, yeah, so that's that. Thanks for that. For this question. And last is VAS with Z pools and moving to FreeBSD thirteen. Ah. So that goes. Hi Alan, Benedict, JT, and Tom. Excellent. All the people. Uh greetings and salutations from Windsor, Ontario. Hey, that's right around the corner for you, Alan. <laughs> uh um, well,
1: that's like four or five hours drive away, but yes.
0: Yeah, f- closer for you than for me still.
1: <laughs> okay, so thanks it's for your show. actually probably closer to Michael Lucas than my
0: house. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, good to know. <laughs> um, so yeah, he writes, thanks for your show. And uh, Michael W. Lucas, absolute free BSD. I entered the BSD world two and a half years ago. Hey, great. That's what books are for, and Michael's in particular. Um, <laughs> I started with a Raspberry Pi and managed to try many free BSD features on it offer apache zfs mirror using two usb thumb drives Ooh, dlna server to name a few finally last summer i built a new computer with a ryzen 3200g 16 gigs of memory an ssd z root for the system and two ironvolves 4 terabyte each at a mirror z pool. cool i used the la uh, i use the ironvolves pool as storage for various files as a nas As a newbie, I'm trying to avoid surprises and run FreeBSD 12.2 release, and I haven't Zpool upgrade my pools yet. I am very excited for the FreeBSD 13 release, as I will get my graphics supported. Ah, one of the following weekends, I will take the time to do the new installation. Is it going to be a nice opportunity for me to set up the system from scratch and clean it up? Oh, yeah, it is going, yeah. Um, I would like to ask you what you... What would be the proper and safer way to upgrade my computer? I don't care about the zero pool, but I do care about the Iron Wolves mirror pool. Shall I Zpool export the Iron Wolves before the new install and Zpool import after the installation? Uh, is there anything specific to the, to be careful about? Uh, thank you for being there for the BSD community. I hope to see you soon at the next BSD can. Yes. Oh.
1: Yeah. So, uh, exporting basically happens when you shut down. Uh, so that won't make a difference. Yeah definitely want to be careful not to accidentally overwrite the iron wolves when doing your install, uh, or anything like that, if that's what you mean. But outside of that, uh, I wouldn't expect there to be much issues. Um, it's the Z pool upgrade, uh, that you want to watch out for. And, you know, that one, the thing is just, you know, when you run Z pool upgrade, you have to tell it which pool to do it to. Uh, so it won't accidentally do the wrong one or anything. So no, you should just be safe to, to do it, uh, as the instructions say.
0: Yeah. Make sure to update the boot code so that you can still boot from the, especially after you've uh, updated the pool, because that has newer um, information there. And and a 12.2 bootloader cannot boot a 13 pool, because that has newer features uh, that it doesn't know about. Uh, But yeah, everything else is just straightforward. And if you, if you do get stuck or do have problems, then send a follow-up. We'll be happy to help. And uh, I'm fairly sure we can restore you to a proper 13 system. You can also uh, try it out in a virtual machine, like create yourself a little uh, mirrored pool there and make the install in the virtual machine to make sure that you're not uh, accidentally uh, doing the wrong things. And then once you're satisfied with that, you can do it on the real machine. Okay, good luck. And yeah, it would be nice to see you one day if things... Uh, come back to normal but it's good to see that you did spend the time last year uh productively learning and trying out new things okay that's what we also should do now because this episode is done for the day and we hoped you liked the episode and the next one will be just as exciting i'm fairly sure that will be and it will contain one of us at least and we're looking forward to that and see you next time